Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to Not Another Mummy podcast with me, Alison Perry. Hey listener, do you have kids? Do they have bodies? And do you want them to be happy? If the answer is yes, then my conversation with today's guest is for you. Molly Forbes is the author of Body Happy Kids and a mum of two. Molly was a guest on the podcast a few years ago. Back then, she was a host on the Channel 4 show Naked Beach, which shone a light on the body insecurities that many of us have and helped lots of people overcome them. Since then, Molly has set up social enterprise Body Happy Org and has been campaigning to ban diet club adverts around and near schools and using her voice to help others raise our kids in a body happy way. Her book is fantastic and it combines her own experience with a range of experts to provide parents with the tools to raise resilient children and teens who love the skin they're in. As we touch upon in our chat, research shows that children as young as three feel bad about their bodies and pressure from media, social media and celebrity culture to look a certain way and to conform to a certain body ideal has never been stronger. So what can we do about it? Here's Molly to tell us what she thinks. Hello, Molly Forbes. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. I'm really good. I've just been for lunch with my friend. We went to a, a spa, well, we went for a swim. None of the actual stuff in the spa was open, but we had a nice swim. I feel like rested and excited for this chat with my friend, Alison Perry. That's so nice. <laughs> yes, we should, we should, we should, a little disclaimer at the start, we're mates. Um, I always feel like a little bit funny about inviting people that I know really well onto the podcast because I guess the kind of the journalist in me wants to, you know, invite the people onto the podcast who I think will have really interesting conversations. And I don't want anyone to be like, oh, she's just inviting her mates on. But when those two things overlap and you've actually got mates who've got really interesting things to say, I think it's all right. It's it's all right to, you know, invite your mates on your podcast, (laughs) isn't it? Yeah. And also, you know, I've actually made some friends through doing my podcast and people that I wouldn't necessarily have met, you know, in other 
in other kind of circumstances. So I think it's, I think it's totally fine. And we won't, yeah. it's not, we're not just going to be gossiping. Like we'll talk about proper well, stuff. So there might be a bit of gossip. No, no, there won't be any gossiping. We'll, we'll save that for later. Um, but it is so good to have you back on. You have been a previous guest. You came on in 2019, I think it was. Um, and back then you were appearing as a host on Channel 4's Naked Beach. But so much has happened since then, hasn't it? It has. It's, um, Oh, well, yeah, it's it's a bit strange to think back over the last two years because we've all, so much has happened for all of us. I mean, we've had a global mm. pandemic, which for starters, but also my work has been, I don't know, I, I forget sometimes, I don't know if you're like this, but sometimes I really struggle to get perspective and kind of look at the things that I've achieved and the things that I've done. Mm. And I get really caught up in looking ahead and looking at what I still need to tick off my to-do list and what I still need to do. And I'm very sort of focused on the future. And actually, when I think back to 2019 and I look at all the things that have happened and all the things that I've made happen and all the, you know, the work that I've done, and everything that I've been through as a person as well, it's just kind of phenomenal, really, to think that that, that much has happened in two years. And that's so nice that you are able to say that, because like you say, I think so many of us, we just focus on, oh, I didn't get through my to-do list today, or, oh, you know, um, I, I don't feel any closer to, you know, ticking off that goal, you know, that I really want to achieve rather than just stopping and taking stock and thinking, look what I've done. Like, I'm I'm pretty pleased with, with what I've achieved. I know. And do you know, I think that's like, it's capitalism, isn't it? It dies hard. Mm. Like, we're hardwired to be productive and to have a plan and to be ambitious. And particularly when your job is so important to you and it's something that you live and breathe anyway and that you love and it's something that you're passionate and you care about and you you know want to kind of create change and help people that kind of it can that you can feel sometimes like you've never done enough but also I think just generally I know I'll never forget a few years ago we decorated our living room and my mum came around this is like pre-covid and my mum came round and she was like, oh, it looks lovely in here. Oh, I love, you know, the colour that you've used. And I immediately was like, yeah, so we're going to do in the hall, in the hallway next. And I want to do this. And I went, and she was like, just hang on a minute. You've just like, just enjoy this room for a second. You don't need to immediately <laughs> go into the next room and be thinking about what you're going to do in there. And that is kind of, you know, I think I am sort of hardwired to be a little bit that way. And so it is nice to kind of, I have to force myself to just take a step back and look back a little bit, you know, and just to think, right, remind myself of what I've actually done and, and, you know, what I've achieved and what's happened. And it doesn't always have to be big, big stuff. You know, it could just be, I don't know, having, you know, the kids reading them a bedtime story and having two school runs where no one was moaning and managing to empty the dishwasher. Like some days that's enough. <laughs> that sounds like a pretty good day to me. Yeah. Um, but you, you came on, when you came on in 2019, um, I feel like since then you've pivoted a bit from being someone, back then you were someone who talks about body image on your social media and, uh, you know, you'd appeared on, on this Channel 4 programme as a host. Um, but, since then, you've really developed in someone who is actively trying to facilitate the change with campaigns, events, workshops, training for parents and carers and teachers, 
all kind of help, you know, to help them promote healthy body image in kids. It's, it, you know, I mean, you know, we're talking about looking back and patting yourself on the back. That's just a, an incredible achievement in the last couple of years. Oh, thank you. That, I really appreciate that. That means a lot. I think, I agree. I think, you know, at some point with this work, whenever we talk about body image and diet culture and weight stigma, um, the way that I see it is um, it's important to build inner resilience and to learn to call these messages out and to work on, you know, self-love, self-acceptance, whatever you want to call it, body acceptance. That stuff is important, but it doesn't mean anything if we're not also working to tackling some of the messages that make us feel bad in the first place. And also a step further for me, just talking about diet culture, um, or beauty ideals or body ideals or whatever, um, sometimes it can feel a bit surface level, Instagram, hashtag self love. And actually people are dying because of weight stigma, you know, and diet culture is deeply embedded with, um, racism and ableism and these huge systems of oppression that hold everyone back. And it feels a bit kind of surface level to just sort of say, love yourself, you know, without actually tackling some of the things that are preventing us, you know, from loving ourselves and are actually causing really damaging harm to people, including children as young as three years old, you know? And so and I think that's what's so yeah. good about your book is that it does delve into these things. Um, and it sadly it is a fact that a lot of kids worry about the way they look. You mentioned, um, already that, Research shows that children as young as three feel bad about their bodies. But how has this happened? You know, you, you know, we've already talked about, you know, that there are messages around us and, you know, things that people say that kind of infiltrate. But, you know, the introduction to your book is called We Are Not Born Hating Our Bodies. So what happens between being born and that moment that a child might, for the first time, feel bad about the way they look? Oh, so many. I don't think there's one particular reason. I think it's, I like to think about it as almost like a jigsaw puzzle and all of the messages and all of the different, um, ways that children can start to learn that some bodies are good bodies and some bodies are bad bodies and they can start to question and doubt their body. They come from so many different places. So it, it might be that you know, they're overhearing conversations from their parents or their grandparents or their aunties or uncles or parents in the playground talking about, you know, diet, dieting or, you know, wanting to lose weight for summer or whatever. And these conversations are as normalized as conversations about the weather. You know, they're often a way, particularly for women that, that we, that we bond with each other talking about how dissatisfied we are in our body and children hear this. But I don't think it's just that. I also think it's in the lack of positive representation of fat characters. And I say that in like a fat positive way. I know lots of people still think the word fat is, is an insult, but actually that's part of the problem. You know, fat is actually just a neutral word, just in the way that thin is, is a neutral word, but because it's often weaponized against people and it's come to be conflated with all these negative characteristics. Children learn that really early on. And they learn that because of lack of positive representation. If you think about Disney, for example, the heroes, the princesses, the people at the center of the story who get love and success and happiness and save the day, they all have a particular type of body, you know? But then if you think on the flip side of that, the negative representation, the bodies that are often the punchline of the joke. I mean, 
Daddy Pig in Peppa Pig, his his body's constantly the punchline of the joke. Think about Ursula, you know, in Little Mermaid. Um, And if you think about, you know, how often the the fat kids in films are portrayed as the bully, you know, that steals people's sweets. Or if if they aren't the bully, then they're like the jolly matriarch, you know, or the comedy sidekick. They're never the person at the centre of the story who's actually getting love and if they are in the few few times when they are it's like that's in spite of their body it's still that their body is the center of the story you know um and it's them like overcoming some kind of adversity and being loved in spite of their body um and i think that children are not immune to these messages and they happen really young and then the other side of that is that in this country there is and I write about this in the book and this is, we could talk about this for hours <laughs> on its own, but the, the way that, um, the so-called war on obesity. So I'm, no one can see me, but I'm doing air quotes with obesity because I know a lot of people find that word triggering because it basically pathologizes, you know, the human body. And it, again, it kind of says that one type of body is wrong and it kind of medicalizes it. There's a lot of fat positive activists who are reclaiming use of the word fat and say, actually, obesity, it makes it sound like I've got a disease and I just live in a fat body. And there's the research is really hazy. So the kind of the all of the public health campaigns that are very kind of weight normalized. They're not weight inclusive. They're very focused on body size and saying that one type of body is better than another type of body and um, really ignoring the nuance of health and the many different factors that impact people's weight and their overall health, which are completely beyond our control. Um, kids pick up on these messages as well. And it's not even a case of them picking up on these messages. Sometimes it's a case of them being taught these messages in school. You know, if they have to do like a healthy eating activity and they're being taught to sort food on a plate and say that some food is good food and some food is bad food, that's a very common way of talking about health and healthy eating. The fact that kids are weighed in school still, you know, all of this stuff, um, it comes from a place of good intention because, you know, it's like public health campaigns, but actually what it's doing is it's causing harm. It's causing kids to doubt and feel bad about their bodies. And ironically, it's actually having bad health outcomes because if you feel bad about your body, you're less likely to do things that make your body feel good. Um, like for example, moving your body and exercising, you know, you're, if you feel shame about, about your body, that can also impact your mental health, which then impacts your physical health. And I think that we've got ourselves into a bit of a, we've kind of dug ourselves into a bit of a hole. And those are just a few things. There's a whole load of other things, which I mean, I could go into, but I feel like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, I haven't even mentioned social media. So <laughs> that'll be on the extended version. <laughs> yeah. um, we, will, we will get to stuff like social media um, mm-hmm. um, later on in the episode. But um, in your book, you, you kind of mention a few of the things that were around in kind of popular culture while you were growing up. So things like Cher in the film Clueless, worrying about getting fat, Monica in Friends, wearing a fat suit in the flashbacks and being shy and kind of less than capable. But, you know, thin Monica is totally on it now that she's lost the weight and really kind of linking that kind of personality with with weight. Um, You know, when you think about it, and I was reading this and I was like, it was like a light bulb in my head thinking, oh yeah, like it hadn't even occurred to me that I was being subjected to all of this negativity 
um, around weight and size. And when you think about it, we, our generation, we didn't really stand a chance, did we, in terms of, you know, growing up loving our bodies with all of this being thrown at us? No, absolutely. And that's kind of what I always say if, I don't know, if we're doing a workshop with teachers or if I'm doing a talk or if people message me, I don't, what I really don't, one of the things I don't like about that's kind of become a side effect of these talks about, you know, conversations about body acceptance and body positivity, which are so important. But sometimes what can happen is the side effect of that is that people can feel guilty for not feeling at peace in their bodies. And they're like, I know about diet culture and I know that this stuff is insidious and that it exists, but I still feel bad about my body. And I feel and then they feel guilty and ashamed because they're like, it's something that they're not winning at. Um, And then also then they've got the double heap of guilt and shame because they're worried that they're maybe role modeling problematic kind of ideas and behaviors in front of their kids and they don't want their children to grow up with these ideas they want their children to be free and not have to relearn and go through the process that they're going through they don't want their kids to ever have to even do that they want them to always feel happy and you know friends with their body but the thing that I always say is it is it's never your fault it's never our fault the problem was never your body the problem was never your mindset the problem was the culture and the society that we live in and that goes back to your original point where you were talking about, you know, how my work has kind of evolved. And I think that that's something that I've realized the more I've done this work and the more people I've interviewed and the more I've talked about it and read about it and read the research is that that um, that kind of individual inner resilience building and exploration and learning is really important. We do have to do that internal work. But also we, we need to take a look at the bigger picture. And you're right. Like I, I grew up in the nineties, like you and you know, that, but even now, if I think back to this time last year, when we first went into lockdown and, you know, the pandemic was happening and hundreds of thousands of people were dying and people were terrified. The schools were closing. And just as you know, all these images and photographs were in the newspapers of people coming out of supermarkets, stockpiling loo roll and, you know, buying all the pasta and all of the memes going around on the internet about that. But at the same time, immediately the fat joke started and the pre and post quarantine body joke started and the diet culture nonsense just immediately ramped up and then that turned into an actual verified government public health campaign where Boris Johnson literally came out and came on the news and told everyone to go on a diet to like do their bit and save the nation and not get COVID and that is like it's so insidious and in lots of ways lots of things are changing and we're making lots of steps forward but we're also I don't know sometimes it feels it feels like we're not we're not making as many steps forward as we need to because every now and again we'll take a huge step backwards yeah, yeah. that's really interesting though to hear you talking about um you know the I guess the relationship that we have with our own bodies and also as parents um you know our desires and wishes for how our kids view their bodies you know from my point of view you know, body image and loving the skin that I'm in is a journey that I am absolutely still on. And I'm really happy to admit that, you know, I've been subjected to decades of diet culture and it led to me being utterly miserable, going to diet clubs, counting points, 
going to bed early because I was so hungry, but I wasn't allowed to eat anything else that day. Um, and it's not like I can just flick a switch and all of that and suddenly be like, oh, I love my body now. You know, it's a journey that I'm on. Um, but alongside that, I really want to help my 10 year old and my other daughters, but they're only two. You know, I really want them to develop a healthier relationship with, with their bodies. But I can do that, can't I? Even though I'm not fully there myself. Yeah, 100%. I think, and that is actually reassuring thing for people to hear because there's this idea that in order to raise body happy kids, um, we have to be kind of at peace and happy and confident in ourselves. And actually you don't have to have Lizzo levels of confidence in order to raise kids who are, you know, body confident themselves. It, the, the research shows it can be hugely powerful just to neutralize your language. So even if you're having a bad body image day, maybe you've bought a new dress and it doesn't fit, or maybe you're not liking, you know, the way your hair looks that day, or maybe whatever it is that is about your appearance that you're not enjoying, you're not feeling comfortable with. Just not vocalizing that in front of your children and actually talking about bodies less, you know, um, talking about kind of those intrinsic values that make us who we are you know um those things can that can be really powerful when it comes to kids body image and there's a huge body of research that shows that parents who regularly talk about dieting and um you know perfect bodies good bodies bad bodies commenting on celebrities weight loss etc their children are more likely to then talk about dieting and exhibit kind of body dissatisfaction. Whereas if you can just kind of neutralize some of that language and not vocalize it, that can make a huge impact. And I think actually that it's, it's a positive thing if you can sometimes, depending on the age of your children, but I actually think it could be a hugely empowering thing to be able to, um, relate to your kids. So if your kid is feeling bad about their body, often as a parent, like the immediate thing is like, oh no, you're beautiful. But actually saying to them, do you know what? This stuff is hard and I'll let you into a secret. Sometimes I feel bad about my body too, but the problem isn't your body and the problem isn't my body. The problem is the culture that we live in puts a huge amount of pressure on us to look a certain way. And it's hard and it feels rubbish. And I'm right here with you. And I know, but we, we don't just because we feel like this now, it doesn't mean we're always going to feel like this. And there are things that we can do to feel better. Let's do it together. You know, that can be a really empowering thing for children to hear, you know, and That's such a good idea. Yourself. I'm going to, I'm going to listen back to this and write this down and I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to, I'm going to say it word for word to my 10 year old next time. She's kind of like, you know, saying something about, about herself. <laughs> it, it's really hard, isn't it? Because like you say, the, um, quite often the immediate reaction from us is like you say, to say, Oh no, don't be daft. You're beautiful. Or, or sometimes I just try and shut the conversation down because I, I kind of almost like freeze. Like my my 10-year-old came out of her swimming lesson a couple of weeks ago um, wearing shorts or something, even though it wasn't particularly a hot day, and um, was like talking to her friend about how hairy her legs were. And I tried to almost like shut the conversation down. And the other mum, who's quite, she's she's really kind of like wise about all of this stuff, like way more than I am. 
And she kind of didn't shut it down. She started talking about it and started talking about, oh, you know, when I was your age, you know, I was really paranoid about, you know, body hair. But now I just totally know that it's normal and it's, you know, everyone's got it and we should just embrace it and blah, blah, blah. And I was just like, wow, this is so good. Like, I really need to fight that instinct to kind of shut down any difficult conversation and try and actually, like you say, have that releasability and that kind of, I know how you feel. I'm right here with you. Let's, you know, mm. let's tackle this together kind of thing. That it's, the thing is, it sounds easy to do, but in the moment, it's another thing. Like, you no, know, like you don't unlearn all these negative messages overnight and suddenly wake up one morning and be like, right, I've healed my bad body image. Like that doesn't happen overnight. But in the same way, these habits, these ways that we relate to our children, the way that we, you know, relate to other people, that requires, you know, a bit of unlearning as well. And I think that so many people will relate to what you just said, myself included, because often like difficult conversations, they can feel icky and uncomfortable and you don't always have like they often as well with kids is that they happen when you're least expecting them. (laughs) They're happening when you're like in a rush to get to school or you're just trying to like make breakfast and, and it all just pop up and happen. And in that moment, I think, um, think it's important to, um, give yourself some grace. And I do this, I do this myself too. I think loads of people think that just because I've written a book about this, that I'm somehow like never making a misstep with this stuff. But actually, we're all messy humans. We're all learning and I'm learning too. And that's the thing with body image is that it's a constantly evolving learning thing. It's a psychological construct. It's not like a road that you start at the beginning and there's an end point and you get to the end point and you're like, yay, completed it. I'll get a certificate at the end. It doesn't work like that. Just like parenting doesn't work like that. So I think um, one thing in that moment that can be quite useful, and this is something that I do myself, and this is something that I picked up from like interviewing various different people, um, is actually in that moment, if you feel like looking back, you didn't deal with the conversation or you shut it down, or you maybe you did kind of like pacify them with, oh, it doesn't matter, you're beautiful, whatever that doesn't mean that you can't go back to that conversation later on and actually, again, be really open and say, you know, when you, you know, like the other day when you were saying that thing about um, worrying about the, your hairy legs or whatever it is that that your kid has said, um, and maybe I didn't, I kind of didn't listen to you when you were saying that. And, and I wondered if you wanted to have a chat about it now, because I think that um, sometimes I'm your mum and I worry about wanting to always have the answers to stuff, but actually I don't always have the answers, but I want you to know that you can always talk to me about anything, you know, and just actually kind of revisiting it and just, you know, I mean, yesterday morning, we had a horrendous morning before school. The kids wouldn't put their shoes on. They wouldn't feed the guinea pigs. I was stressed because I had all these work phone calls to do. And I was like, ah, and I ended up shouting at them and then feeling really bad because I'd shouted and I'd behaved like badly in the moment and they went off to school and I was like feeling rubbish all day because I was like bad mum oh and they came out of school and I said to them later you know I didn't behave well this morning and I'm really sorry it's because I'm stressed out and I'm overwhelmed and I've got a lot on I want you to know that um it wasn't okay for me to shout like that Uh, but also I'm human and I make mistakes and just like sometimes you get angry and you shout and it like has to come out somewhere. It's the same for me. And I'm sorry that you had to see that. And both of them were like, it's okay, mum, we understand. 
And I think sometimes it's reassuring for kids to hear that, you know, that their parents don't have all the answers. Yeah, I think it's really healthy, actually. And I think that's something that possibly a lot of people of our generation didn't have growing up, you know, like <laughs> our parents possibly didn't have apologize for anything or have those conversations or, you know, admit to vulnerabilities or anything like that. And I actually, I think that's something that has really improved over the years with, you know, the way that parents chat to their kids. Mm, mm. Yeah. I mean, thing is, my parents were both teachers and in secondary schools and they were really on it with a lot of this stuff. And I did have a, I do have a really close relationship with them. And I do, I did feel that I could talk to them about a lot of stuff, but even so there was still some stuff that I did keep to myself. And I'm, I don't know if that's just a case of, you know, um, growing up and being a teenager and sometimes you do have to work some stuff out on your own I remember once writing a letter to my mum uh when I was about 16 about something and I wanted to like have a conversation with her about it and talk to her but every time I tried to raise it with her I didn't I felt really awkward and I didn't know how to start the conversation so I wrote her this letter and in the letter I wrote about how sometimes I felt jealous of the kids that she taught because I she was a really popular teacher and we lived in the area that she taught in. So I would often go to house parties with friends who went to her school and she taught them. And they'd always come up to me and say, you're Mrs. Forbes's daughter. Oh my gosh, she's such a good teacher. Oh, your mum helped me with blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and sometimes I'd feel jealous because I'd be like, she's my mum and I want to be able to talk to her about this. So I remember writing her this letter and saying, um, like, sometimes I feel jealous of the people that, like, that you teach, that they can talk to you easily about some stuff. And sometimes I feel awkward. And she came, I remember her like coming into my room and giving me a hug and like saying, you know, I understand like, because it is different with your parents. Sometimes you need that, almost that separate, you need that kind of distance. Sometimes it's easier to talk to someone that you don't know as well. I mean, I guess there's a reason that therapists, you cannot have therapy from your friend. <laughs> it has to be <laughs> someone you don't know. from your parents. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Yeah. Um, now, something that I kind of str still struggle with, um, you know, you, you mentioned before about how sometimes it's good to kind of switch the conversation away from talking about you know, our physical appearance to, you know, other things, th things that are more important. So the kind of people we are, you know, the values we have. But it's kind of so ingrained in me to comment on people's appearances. So, uh, you know, whether it's complimenting my friend's earrings or 
telling my friend's seven-year-old that I love her sparkly unicorn t-shirt. It's it's just almost like this knee-jerk thing I have where if I don't have anything to say, I will comment on their appearance. But, you know, what kind of damage is, is that kind of stuff doing, you know, kind of, you know, to, to our kids when they're hearing us, I guess, placing importance on the way that we look? Mm. So when I was writing the chapter in my book that's all about language and the language that we use to describe bodies. Um, I interviewed Lindsay and Lexi Kite, who run a nonprofit in America called Beauty Redefined. And they've written this amazing book called More Than a Body. And it's all about um, self-objectification. And they describe they describe it as almost like swimming in the sea of self-objectification. So this idea that as women, particularly and young girls, we are constantly told that our value lies in our external appearance. And in that chapter of my book, I talked about how actually sometimes just not commenting on people's bodies, you know, and just not just not commenting on bodies at all can be a really powerful thing. And they were saying how just like we can use beauty to kind of, you know, um, if, if you use beauty to kind of build people up, it, it can also be used to tear people down. So if you're constantly, even if it's like a nice a compliment and you think you're being kind to someone, if you're constantly telling kids that that's where their value lies, that's where they're going to get praise if they look a certain way, you're, it's the other side of the coin, you know, It's and it can be equally damaging as saying, you know, a kid hearing that they don't look right. So actually, but I can understand the theory of that, but I know that in practice, it's a really difficult thing to get out of, particularly it's like these habits. So something that I do in, and, and again, I think I wrote about this in the book is my youngest is really into, she's always had very clear ideas about what she wants to wear. She loves fashion. She loves experimenting with outfits. I mean, I remember going to the the library with her once and she had like this full length, like waist length wig on and long evening gloves. She was like, this is what I'm wearing and don't even question it. And I was like, okay. (laughs) She's like very clear. And the thing that I now do is like, she will often say, oh, what do you think? What do you think of this outfit? And you can compliment someone's outfit without, you you can, you can compliment someone's choice of outfit without actually complimenting and reinforcing that idea that their appearance is the most important thing. So for example, if your friend has bought a really nice pair of earrings that you really like, yeah, of course. I love your earrings. They're so cool. You're so good, like with color. You just always pick like the best, you know, you, you just really always like seem to choose colors that go together really well. You know, that I love the way that those earrings go with that. And it, it's really like, it's, you're so creative, you know, and in that moment, you're not com- complimenting their appearance. You're complimenting their talent and their creativity at picking colors that look nice together. And that's actually something that I, often do with my own kids um as well because there is a way that you can complement those those things without you know um kind of reinforcing that idea that that's what's most important about them yeah i want to do that because my 10 year old quite often i would say at least once a week comes downstairs after you know in the morning after getting ready and she'll just stand and she'll say do you like my outfit and I quite I think she's asking on the days Mm. that she likes her outfit and she's looking for that that extra validation but I think I'm going to say to her because obviously the answer is always yes doesn't matter what Mm. she looks like yes yes um 
I think next time she asks me, I'm going to say something like, yes, oh, you know, you, you're really good at, you know, pairing that t-shirt with those leggings. I love the fact that you've clashed those patterns or something like that, like just yeah. to try and switch it up. So it's not about her appearance. It's about her, her skills at putting together an outfit. Exactly. Because that is a skill. Fashion designers are artists. That is a skillful career to be able to, you know, pair, you know, colors and textures and like, no, I love fashion. Just because I think that, you know, the way that we look is the least important thing about us doesn't mean that I don't love trying a new outfit on or find, get, you know, a thrill of like, because actually the wet, the clothes that we wear as well can be a way for us to sort of, um, exert our own personality and explore our identity. And for children and tweens and teens, particularly, clothes can be a really important part of them learning about who they are and trying on, literally trying on different personalities, you know, different kind of identities. Um, anyone who was a teenager who's gone through phases where they've like dyed their hair, you know, different colors or tried, you know, I'm going to be a goth today and I'm going to only wear black. You know, <laughs> I remember watching the craft and deciding that that was, that was going to be me when that lasted Love about that a week. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that's all part of the process of growing up and also is part of the process of, of just being a human, I think. So I don't think it means that you can never comment on that stuff at all. It's just, the way you do it. That makes sense, definitely. And the way that we talk to our children about food is hugely important, isn't it? And I, yeah. you know, it, it can really affect the, the whole, their whole relationship with eating. In the book, you talk about an experience that your dad had as a child where he was forced to sit there until he'd eaten everything on his plate and it left him feeling pretty humiliated. And I actually had quite a similar experience. You know, I, well, I was reading the book and, thing, and it brought back memories of being made to sit at the table in tears, not allowed to leave until I'd finished eating the curry that I'd been served and wasn't enjoying. Um, and the fact that that's still with me now, you know, I'm in my 40s, clearly forcing kids to eat everything on the on their plate isn't good but what can we be doing to foster a healthy, happy relationship with mealtimes and food? Mm. So there's a really useful tool. It's, 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 a, it's a model. It's called the Division of Responsibility and it's devised by an infant feeding specialist called Ellen Satter, who's American. And uh, the nutritionist that I interviewed for uh, that chapter of my book um, Sarah Dempster, who was, um, she's the person who mentioned the division of responsibility. Basically, to put it really simply, it's the idea and it is kind of complex. So it, it sounds sort of simple, but when you dig into it, it can be, it can be more complicated. So essentially it's the idea that some, when it comes to food and eating, some jobs are the adult's responsibility and some things are the kid's responsibility. And the things that are the adult's responsibility are creating a structure around food. So, you know, deciding when meal times are, when snack times are, deciding what's on the menu. So, you know, deciding what you're going to buy. Um, and, and the things that are, uh, and where you're going to eat it as well. You know, if you, if you're, if you're privileged enough to have a dinner table and eat at a dinner table, if you're going to eat there or if you're going to eat in front of the TV or whatever, those are, that's on the adult. Yeah. But then when it comes to the actual eating, that's not the adult's responsibility. That's on the kid. And the problems 
can occur when it comes to food and kids' relationship with food when the responsibilities get muddled. So when the kids start taking some of the adults' responsibilities and the adults start taking some of the kids' responsibilities. So for example, saying you can't have pudding until you've eaten everything on your plate or you need to eat that final pea. Um, you're then, that's not your responsibility. You've provided the food and you've you've given your your a structure but it's up to your kid if they eat that food um and that sounds kind of simple in real life but again these habits die hard and as parents food is such an emotive thing because we know that we know, we're told constantly that nutrition plays such an important role in overall health and well-being and nutrition is important but it's certainly not the whole story and Unfortunately, the cult that the sort of oversimplified narrative around health, the idea that it's all about individual responsibility, we have total control over our health, makes us believe that if we just get our kids to eat all their broccoli and eat all their peas, and we don't ever allow them access to kind of sweet food, then they're going to grow up and they're going to be super duper healthy. But we're ignoring all of the other things that can impact their health. And what we actually aren't realizing when we do that is that we're potentially not setting our kids up to have a healthy long-term relationship with food. So do you want your kid to eat all the peas on their plate at this meal time, Or do you want them in, you know, 10, 5, 10, 15, 20 years to continue to eat all the peas on their plate and, you know, eat vegetables and eat food that, you know, is nutrient dense and makes their body feel good? Because if you're in it for the long game, then actually all the research shows that using the division of responsibility kind of method, using neutral language around food, so not placing some food on a pedestal and vilifying others, giving children um, unrestricted, uh, regular unrestricted access to some of the foods that you don't want them to eat so much of means that they're going to know how to handle themselves around those foods. You know, if your kid never see, never has sweets or chocolate, the few times that they get access to that, they're going to like binge it and want it. They're not going to know how to handle themselves around it. Or the other side is that they then develop a fear of those foods and they can actually become quite scared of them. And, and they can also make comments and judgments about other people that they say eat that they see eating in that way and that's really harmful when we go back to kind of the social justice element of body image because actually we know that so many families um particularly kind of after that what's happened in the last year lots of people are relying on food banks for their food we don't all have the same access to nutrient dense food lots of children are being stigmatized in school because of their food choices and it doesn't just stigmatize their bodies and make them feel kind of self-conscious about their own bodies, but it also stigmatizes their family background, their income. It can stigmatize their culture, you know, all of these things um, that are actually all intrinsically linked with the language that we use when we talk about food. So I that that chapter when I was writing, it was really interesting for me when I was reading some of the research because it almost seems really simple um, when you kind of flip it and you think, you know, actually some of the stuff that we're doing to try and make kids, you know, quote unquote, eat healthily, it's actually having the opposite effect. It's yeah. not working. It's having the opposite effect. And that's, and it, that's you know, really uh, interesting. And like with so many things with parenting, we, I, th I think, you know, our first instinct is to, is to do things the way that feel feel seems familiar to us so the way that we were brought up that's 
you know, for, for so many of us, especially when we, when you first become parents, that's your kind of go to, cause that's your experience, isn't it? And that's your memory and things like the division of responsibility. So we've actually been doing that with all three of our kids for the last few months. I think it was since we saw it on one of your um, Instagram posts and it made me kind of Google it and look into it a bit more. Um, and, but it's really hard because like, so I was totally on board with it. And then I was trying to explain it to my husband because he does quite a lot of the kids meal times. And I was saying things to him like, um, you know, don't question how much, don't get frustrated if there's still lots of food left on the plate. And we're dealing with two year olds as yeah. well as a 10 year old. And it's, it's kind of harder, isn't it? But it's different. Mm. It's a completely different situation. Those two, you know, ages of kids and their meals. Um, but also things like, um, you know, the, the, our toddlers, we've got those plates that are all divided up. So they've got lots of choice and they, you know, and saying to him, you know, put, put the bits of melon and the fruit and the yogurt out at the same time as, you know, the, the kind of savory things that you're putting out, like the cheese and the, you know, um, the vegetables and things. And that was kind of, that kind of blew his mind. And he really kind of pushed back on that, you know, to begin with. And we've had to almost like say to his parents as well, if they're ever giving the girls lunch, you know, don't keep the fruit back as almost like a treat at the end of the, and I know that you wouldn't normally associate, like in terms of what we're talking about here, fruit wouldn't necessarily be deemed as a treat. Like, you know, quite often you're talking about more like chocolate and, you know, cake and biscuits and things like that. But even, you know, even kind of trying to re-educate my mother-in-law to put the fruit out on the plate at the same time. And it doesn't, she's like, no, 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 but they'll fill up on the fruit and then they won't have any of the savory stuff. And it's like, <laughs> it doesn't matter. Let them pick and choose and eat mm. in a way that they want to. That's okay. But it's hard because all of this mm. stuff is so ingrained in us, isn't it? And we've still, I was reading your book about, you know, how having a treat cupboard isn't necessarily ideal. And I was like, oh no, we've got a treat cupboard. And more than that, we have like little treat boxes. So we've got like a labeled treat box for my 10 year old. And she'll say to us after a meal, oh, can I have something from my treat box? And quite often the answer is no, but quite often the answer is yes. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to have to get rid of the treat box. What are we going to do? Like we need to completely change that up. We're doing it wrong. So this, this stuff is hard. Um, it is hard. It is really hard. And um, I think that just like, with all the stuff that we've talked about today it's just a case of giving yourself some grace and recognizing that it's difficult and it's not the change isn't going to necessarily happen overnight i think that one of the hardest things with food and parenting um and this is again something that i realized when i was writing that chapter of the book is that um as parents we know that we've got some duties there are like some basic things that we need to achieve yeah Things like making sure our kids feel loved, making sure they're warm, making sure they've got a roof over their head and making sure that they're fed. And food is, you know, such an intrinsic part of life. Like we need it to survive. Um, but also it, it has, it has a real emotive value and, you know, it plays a role in our culture, in our family stories, in our memories. And it is an emotive thing. And I think sometimes the scary thing with, with as a parent can be the idea of, you know, it's almost like the idea that you're letting go of that control. But actually, what you sort of need to recognize is that you never really had that control in the first place, because it's not your body, it's your kid's body. And it's, it's, it, you know, they're the one who's in control of their hunger and their fullness. 
So, but the other thing is that actually it's not you relinquishing control because there are still things that you're responsible for. So you're still responsible for, you know, providing the food and choosing the food that you have in your house and also making sure, you know, that you have a structure around when you eat. So, you know, whether there are like structured snack times, um, you know, the kind of time of the day that you have your meals, whether you eat all together as a family or whether you, you eat up at the table in front of the telly, all of those things, that's still on you. So you do still have an element of control. You say that, Molly, but when you have two-year-olds who refuse to get into their high chair <laughs> and they will only eat their, you know, one of them will only eat their lunch sitting on the sofa, <laughs> Yeah, that's, you know, you've got to relinquish that control. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it is hard. It is difficult. And I and I get like as well, like with the it works in different ways for older and younger children, because there'll be different challenges. And I know that it's the same for teenagers as well. Um, But I think the interesting thing for me was the idea of thinking about it as a long game. And thinking about anyone who's ever been on a diet where you cut out something, you not, you don't allow yourself to eat something will know that actually when you tell yourself that you can't eat something, it's more often than not the only thing that you really can think about eating. It's the thing that you really want. And it's the same with kids. So if they're, if they, if they're not allowed, you know, chocolate or sweets or they, they see it as this thing that, you know, is only like for like, they're only allowed it, you know, once in a blue moon, then it can, it can really elevate. It can, can make it seem even more interesting, can make them want it even more. Whereas if you sort of neutralize it, and this isn't to say that every meal is going to be, you know, chocolates or donuts, because that isn't what this is about. It's about allowing children to feel in tune with their body and really kind of uh, know that their body is their own and, and really feel kind of, um, know what makes their body feel good you know um and it's the same with movement as well um yeah but i mean i recognize it's difficult it's i mean yeah (laughs) it's hard but it's funny you mentioned movement because my next question is about exercise and movement and something clicked for me around 18 months ago and for the first time in my life I started viewing exercise as something to do because it made me feel good and not to change my body shape. You know, like I do Pilates to help strengthen my back after having a C-section. I do cardio classes because it boosts my mental health. What can we teach kids about exercising and moving for the right reasons rather than because, or for the wrong reasons? Mm. So I think just like with, with food, kids do move intuitively. I think, um, I wrote in the book and the analogy was you don't walk. I've never walked past my kid's playground and seen groups of kids doing burpees or squats or shouting, you know, feel the burn. (laughs) Feel the burn. Come on. (laughs) 10 more, 10 more. (laughs) You know, like doing hit, you know, it just doesn't. But actually kids will often run or skip or hop when they could just walk. You know, they will often you know, dance and do dance routines and, and jump around and they kind of naturally do that. The issue can come when we start putting adult rules kind of through a diet culture lens around movement and we start showing children those rules. 
So for example, I heard recently from someone who said that their kid's football coach had taught, had said to the whole football team that they need to really, um, in order to train for the season and get better, they need to really focus on their nutrition. And he showed them a before and after picture of, you know, an, uh, someone who'd like been working out and gone on some kind of nutrition plan, which was essentially a diet. And these kids are like 10 and 11 years old, you know, and already he's showing them that through you know, it, it, the the coach didn't know better it wasn't it wasn't like he was deliberately trying to you know uh, do something harmful but actually that can be incredibly harmful because it's not just harmful for the kids on an individual level but it, it's harmful on a societal level because it means that children can then make assumptions that anyone who's in a bigger body you know, that somehow they're lazy or they don't exercise or it gives exercise like moral value. And it means that people can then start to equate moving their body with, you know, actually doing it to kind of perform or fit this kind of body ideal. And actually the research on this is so interesting because all the research, like there's a huge body of research to show that if we, if we work out and move our body for intrinsic reasons, like how it makes us feel, um, all those internal intrinsic reasons, like, you know, bone health, brain health, as opposed to as a tool for weight loss or as a tool to get ripped or whatever it is that we're trying to do to change our external appearance, we're much more likely to consistently engage with exercise, you know, and actually I think that with kids, it's just a chance. It's just a, it's a way of kind of not introducing some of those negative ideas and not introduce, you know, not introducing some of these ideas, like something also that I heard recently, a PE teacher saying to a load of kids, they needed to lose the lockdown weight. It was like their first PE lesson back at school after lockdown. And he made a joke about, you know, come on, we're going to do this. We're going to everyone run around the field. You need to lose your lockdown weight. And that's really harmful. Like, actually, how about we're going to do this because it's going to make us feel really good. It's going to give us a boost of energy. You know, there's so many, so many benefits and pluses to sport and movement. And not all kids will like formal sport. Not all kids will like competitive sport. And that's okay because all movement is valid. Some kids might like dancing. Some kids might like yoga. Some kids might like climbing or being really into running or football or whatever. There's so many different types of ways of moving your body. And actually, that should be open to all children, regardless of what their body looks like, you know? So actually, I think really it's kind of, a, again, it's about neutralizing, using neutral language, knowing that all movement is valid, looking maybe at how you, your own relationship sometimes with exercise as well. Um, and also, actually, this is an interesting one. Sometimes it's about not even referring to it, the exercise at all. So if you're going out for a family walk, and this is something that Tally writes. So Tally is um, an intuitive movement specialist. She's a personal trainer. She's written a book called Train Happy, which is all about intuitive movement and joyful movement. And she's one of the people that I interviewed for this chapter of the book. Um, and she had a really great suggestion. And she said, it's kind of about sometimes just going out. And if you're, for example, going for a family bike ride or a walk, the reason that you might be wanting to do it is because you know that, you know, you'll need to like get moving your body that day and get some fresh air and it's going to be good for you all. But actually you don't need to, you don't necessarily need to share that with the children. You could say, we're, we're going to have an adventure. We're going to go and, you know, we're going to have some time together as a family. It's a fun thing to do. We're going to get outside and bond and, you know, we're just going to like go and see some new views or whatever. You don't even need to 
talk about the movement if that makes yeah. sense like it just That's be such, like yeah. this is a fun thing to do you know definitely definitely we did that a bit when you know on one of the 50 bazillion walks we did as a family during <laughs> lockdown um you know we would we would go to like you know nearby you know woods and make it a bit of a challenge to try and find the biggest stick we could it became a bit of a sort of competitive game <laughs> and it was just like you know that was the focus of it it wasn't a case of no we need to go out and get our you know one allocated walk per day you know it was it's just I guess putting a bit of a fun spin on it for the kids yeah <laughs> I just got this vision of your whole front room just being full of sticks Tell you, what, <laughs> like I, it wasn't, you can't even it, open the door <laughs> it wasn't our front room it was it was the boot of our car had these massive <laughs> and I'm talking about like six foot massive branches and it got to the point where we had to take them out of the boot and put them kind of alongside the, the front of our house <laughs> it was the front of the house and then eventually we were like hmm should we just put these you know should we just t- t- put them out with the rubbish <laughs> <laughs> just got this vision of you were like all driving along in your car with a load of like sticks tied to the roof on the roof <laughs> like rack mark like sticking his head out the window because there's no room inside the car full yeah of pretty much pretty much <laughs> molly it has been so so brilliant to have you on but before you go where can people find you online uh so you can find me on instagram uh, molly j forbes molly with a y um and i'm also the director of a social enterprise called the body happy organization and our instagram for that is at body happy org um and uh the website is uh, bodyhappyorg.com and there are loads of we've got like books resources digital downloads workshops online masterclass stuff for teachers and parents and anyone who works or is ever around children all about this subject um so hopefully that'll be useful for you and body happy kids the book is available to buy now isn't it it is i should have said that yeah it is available (laughs) to buy now uh, wherever you get your books (laughs) wherever you buy your books thank you so much molly it's been brilliant thank you the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTER Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. 
That's stamps.com code program.